Well, this morning we are continuing the sermon series going through the Gospel of Mark, which is what we began last week. And so this week we're going to be in Mark 1, verses 14 through 20. Uh, just as a recap from where we, we've been last week was John the Baptist uh, preaching and proclaiming the forgiveness of sins. And then Jesus coming and being baptized. And as being, as being baptized there, it was uh, symbolism in a way of, of the sins of the people being muddying the water. And here's Jesus now in the water, uh, essentially being bathed in their sins for their cleaning. And then going out into the, the wilderness to be tempted and to facing the curse for us. And this morning now, we're going we're gonna to see really the beginning of the formal, um, or the, the formal beginning of his ministry. But before we read God's word, uh, let's pray. Let's ask for God's blessing upon us for the spirit uh, to be present and active uh, among us in this time. Lord God, we come before you this morning needing to hear you speak. Uh, we always need that. And we have so many other voices throughout the week that want to pull at our attention. And this is a time now for us to focus upon what you have to say. Uh, your word, in one sense, it, it slays us. It kills us. It points out our wrongdoings. But at the same time, it brings us to life and it lifts us up to see the life of Jesus for us. And then you send us out as your people. Lord God, would you do that this morning? Would your spirit be among us, breathing life into our dry and dusty souls to renew us as your people? We pray that you would forgive the sins of the preacher because you know how many they are. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is uh, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, verses 14 through 20. Pay careful attention. This is the word of God. And now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in the bo their boat, mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Amen. Last week, uh, the UK marked the death of Queen Elizabeth II. And many people, not only in England, but all across the world, mourned and they expressed their grievances at the reign of this woman who had ruled for 70 years. But there were also, if you would look on the internet, there were also some other different reactions, very different reactions. One of them was which, why does a monarchy like this still exist in the world today? Not only is it an outdated form of government in the Western world, but the fact that it still exists in a leading nation like the UK ought not to be so, if you read some of the things. And it reflects the sentiment that this idea of an individual ruling alone, free of checks and balances, with singular power over an entire kingdom, is antiquated in our age of democracy. Right? Kingdoms are nice in fiction, but they have no place today. But are kingdoms outdated? 
are kingdoms really outdated. Now, maybe the idea of a national monarchy doesn't fit well with our modern Western sensibilities, but kingdoms, though, are far from outdated. There are innumerable kingdoms over the face of the earth. In fact, there are even kingdoms right here in Newburgh. Because a kingdom and its king and its queen is whatever rules us, whatever holds sway over our lives. And everyone is looking for a kingdom that holds the key to all their hopes and dreams. And everyone puts themselves under some sort of ruler or authority to fill uh, all which that kingdom that in their mind uh, will hold out and promise to them. And most often, that becomes our own selves. We become our own rulers, our kings and queens of our little kingdoms as we determine the values of our lives, as we set ourselves in authority over all of our desires and our longings, when we give affirmation to them, and then we chart the path on how we're going to get there. And doing so is to live with unchecked authority and to rule over ourselves. It's like building a kingdom and interestingly, those kingdoms always look remarkably like our own selves, don't they? But those kingdoms are also as strong as the very, as the very hopes and dreams that they're built upon, which is like a vapor. They're ephemeral. They look like towers in one moment as our dreams reach up into the sky, but then they're toppled or they dissipate as soon as we encounter our own weaknesses, our own frailty, or even our mortality. And we read that John or that Jesus begins his ministry after John the Baptist is arrested and his own ministry then for preparing the coming of the Messiah ends. And now Jesus steps up and he begins his ministry and he preaches a distinct message verse 15. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. It's a kingdom that comes from God himself. A kingdom that transcends the world and eclipses all other kingdoms that we could possibly create or imagine. It's this new kingdom that calls us to evaluate which ones we really, truly value. Is it the kingdom that we build? Is that the one that we want? Or is it something much more lasting? And is the kingdom that I want, is it really as strong as I think it is? Am I the one who's in control or authority? Or is it God through Jesus Christ, his son? Am I really as good or benevolent of a ruler as I think I am? Or am I so hard on myself? Do I ask way too much of my, in my own demands upon myself or how I expect myself to live? Or do I want to live under a ruler like Jesus who's over me, who calls me to service because he has authority over my life, but he also calls me with deep grace in my failures. And we're going to be looking at this kingdom here and the call of this kingdom by answering three questions this morning about what it entails. And the first is, the most basic question we need to ask is, what is this kingdom? What's this kingdom? Well, in simple terms, we can just say this. The kingdom is the reign of God. Now, where his, it's where his authority and his sovereignty and his character are present and active. And in one sense, of course, we say, of course, that's true. God's the ruler over all things. He's the sovereign over everything. He reigns over the world. Nothing escapes him. Everyone is accountable to him. 
So then how can this kingdom be coming? How can this kingdom be near? Does that mean that he isn't reigning in some way? Or that he hasn't reigned at a certain point in time? Well, we have to understand that God's kingdom and his rule isn't just generally over all things, but that this kingdom that Jesus is talking about here, this kingdom and this rule, this reign, is one that's according to a promise. Right? Verse 15, look at it again there. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Fulfilling hints that promise. Right? It's promises that are fulfilled. They don't just hang there suspended in midair on their own, but they're tethered to reality on the basis of a promise. If I did you a favor and then I retroactively told you, well, I promised to do that, and I thus fulfilled my promise... Therefore, I'm a pretty trustworthy person. Well, that would make me one of two things, either delusional or a manipulator. See, fulfillment is grounded in real promises being made at real points in time. And the promises that God gave leading up to this point reach their fulfillment in the kingdom of God coming near. The promise is to save his people and to restore them. The promise is to bring them out from their sin and from their constant failure and from the sin in the world that also enslaved them. And to restore peace in the world as it was before. A peace that the Old Testament refers to as shalom. Where not only God and humanity are at peace with one another once again, but humanity is with one another and the world is at peace as it's bathed in the delightful rest of God. This is a promise that stretches all the way back to Genesis 3.15. After the serpent had, had tempted Adam and Eve and, and the, the, had fallen, and the world had fallen into the curse of sin and death. And then God made a promise. He promised, the, he promised Satan, he promised the serpent that your head will be crushed. And he promised the man and the woman, Adam and Eve, that there would be one, the seed of the woman who would come and crush that head of the serpent and save them and restore peace and righteousness and shalom. It's the promise that continues after that, even with Noah as being one who would, like Noah, who would give the world the rest that they needed. It would continue on to someone like Moses who would say, there is going to be one who then gives you righteousness and, and makes you a, a people who are fully mine. It would continue on to David, a promise that there would be a king who would rule you. For Solomon, one who would even be better, typifying the glory and the peace that would be happening in the reign of God, continuing on and on now until we get to here. The, the kingdom here isn't a reign of God only in his sovereignty, but it's the reign of his redemptive peace and the reign of his new creation in the world. And even though these promises find all of their enjoyment and all of their experience in this kingdom, the kingdom centers on a person. It comes at a time of fulfillment. When all of God's promises that he gave to restore and to make everything right are leading up to this moment right here. The kingdom of God is at hand. It's right at the door. It's knocking. It's on the verge of busting in. The call is urgent. Do you understand the significance of this? But the kingdom doesn't just come on its own. It comes with a person. It comes through a person who rends the heavens and brings it into the world. 
Right? A kingdom requires a king, doesn't it? In verse 14 here, it says that Jesus goes in proclaiming the gospel of God. Now, when we talk about the gospel here in this biblical context, it means literally good news. And the contents of this good news that Jesus is preaching is right here in verse 15. It's, 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 he says he's proclaiming the gospel, the good news of God, saying the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. All right, it's just right outside there. It's waiting to break in. But this fulfillment doesn't happen without a promise. And neither does it, a kingdom come without a king. It doesn't come with a, it comes with a person. And in this case here, the person preaching the good news is also the one whom the kingdom centers upon. The preacher himself, Jesus, is the gospel. He's the good news. Now think back to the very beginning of Mark, his introduction, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, all right? And now here in verse, in verse 14, Jesus is proclaiming the gospel of God. Now I think there's a correlation between the two there. You have the good news of the Son of God, that which centers upon Jesus the Son is also the good news of God. Right? And so in the language, in language of doesn't always mean possession. It often refers to objects or contents, right? A pitcher of water, a flock of birds. The gospel of God the Son isn't only the gospel which comes from God the Son, but it centers on the person of God the Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the gospel. Jesus is the good news. The gospel, the good news, isn't just the experience of God's redemptive reign through Jesus. It's Jesus himself. He is the one who's valuable and precious. He's, this, he's like this crown jewel or a brilliant diamond. He is stunning. He is shining. He is beautiful. He is precious beyond all comprehension. You, it's priceless. You cannot put a value on him other than giving up everything that you have to have him. And like a diamond, the gospel of Jesus as his person and as his work is revealed to us, it's multifaceted. Right? Jesus is the diamond, but as you turn it around and you gaze at it, you see all the various facets highlighted as they catch the light. We see the facets of his justification that makes us right with the Father. We see here the forgiveness of sins. We turn it a little bit around a little bit more and we see his perfect obedience. We see his atoning cross. And then we begin to turn it a little bit different way. And we see the light reflecting off of having no condemnation. And then we see there also glimmering his sanctifying work to make us like himself. And then we flip it over... And we see another glimmer. There's this restoration of humanity, reconciling us together in him. And then we see a little bit more. Oh, there's a glimmer of his justice for the oppressed. Oh, there's his resurrection. There's him making everything that's sad in the world come untrue. Oh, let me turn it over here. Check this out. Here is the loving relationship that we get to share between him and the Father as we're bound together by the Spirit. Oh, look over here. Here's Jesus being king. But also nearby is reflected that he's also not just a king, but our interceding uh, a priest. We see that he's our brother. 
And what makes that diamond so brilliant isn't just one or two or three of those facets. It's the whole thing. You can't describe the brilliance of the diamond just through one facet or just through one angle. It's the entire diamond of Jesus Christ that stuns us as we see them all put together in one person and in his work. And some facets might be larger or more prominent than others. And some facets of and aspects of Jesus might come to us as being more central. Right? The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15 that he delivered to them what was most or the first importance. That Christ Jesus was died, that he was buried, that he was raised and ascended as according to the scriptures. It's the central act in his earthly ministry. But as we come to Jesus, we need to love and to long for all of who he is. Every single facet of who he is. One can't just stand out on its own and we only gravitate to that because they're all a part of Jesus himself. And they all relate to each other. The good news of Jesus is never less than the forgiveness of our sins by his death on the cross. That is fundamental, but it's never just only that. His total brilliance is so much brighter than that alone or any one facet can convey. Have you come to Jesus out of a love for only one part of who he is? Out of just his grace or his righteous justice or his continued acceptance by his blood that he's given for you? Say, friend, come and look at Jesus in the full light. Turn him over. Look at all who he is. Reach out to him and pick him up by faith and lay your eyes on him and gaze at him. Turn him over. Examine him and let his beauty take hold of you. Appreciate him. Love him for all of who he is. The kingdom of God reflects its king, Jesus Christ. The kingdom of God is beautiful. It's about what he does. It's about what he will do and is what he has promised to complete. It looks like him. If he reigns over it, then it's seen through us in ways that reflect all of who he is. Grace, forgiveness, reconciliation, compassion, mercy, justice, hope. All of which center upon him and his bloody cross and an empty tomb and a heavenly throne where he sits right now. Jesus proclaims this kingdom and he calls out for our response. And knowing the beauty of the king and of this kingdom opens up our hearts then to love and desire him more and to respond to his call. So that's what the kingdom is. But the next question is what is the call of this kingdom? Well, there's an urgency to the call. The kingdom's near. It's knocking at the door. It's about to break in. It's about to change the course of human history. Get ready. And so what's the call? He says this, repent and believe in the gospel. It sounds like a conversion call right there. Turn aside from your wicked ways and trust in Jesus and his gospel. Trust in him as the good news. And we can't diminish that one bit. But there's another emphasis here In this context, that's directional or it's positional. Where is your heading? Which way are you pointed? How are you oriented? Is it in alignment with the good news of this kingdom? Is it altering the trajectory of your life? Are you heeding the call and are you desiring this kingdom? See, repent 
is most often thought of in ways of only putting aside sin, right? Change your ways. It's the turning away of our, from our sin and putting it aside in order to escape the wrath of God, which it deserves. And that will only happen when we recognize our sin for what it is, that it really is heinous and it really is deserving of wrath. But that's only one part of repentance. We can't miss that there's also another part, and it's not just turning away from our sin, but it's also turning to something. And that involves seeing something as more valuable than what we had before. Seeing something as more valuable than, our, than sin in our fallen ways that we've been following after. All right, you can try to put aside any, in, in, any wrong inclination, but unless there is another affection to take its place, you're going to turn back to it. And it's the same with sin. You can turn aside out of fear of what it's going to bring. But true repentance also recognizes something much better, something so much better to come and to take its place. It sees a better way of life, in, of fellowship and reconciliation in God. So repent and believe in the gospel is, to, is a call for us to evaluate what's valuable and good. And that extends to whatever kingdoms we make ourselves a part of or whatever kingdom it is that we identify with. Ask yourself the question, where am I right now? Don't say I'm here in this room, all right? But what I mean is this, in this moment, what kingdom am I seeing as valuable? Who is the king or queen? What is it that my hopes and my dreams are built upon and how firm is that foundation? What might cause it all to topple over and crumble? And is this really what I want to live my life and stake my life upon? Is it going to be valued to me in five years? Is it going to be valued to me, to, valuable to me in 20 years, let alone eternity? And is it going to hold its value? But friends, what does the kingdom of Jesus offer to you? Something much better. A life of flourishing that goes beyond the disappointments of this world. A kingdom that will never crumble or fall because it's built by the eternal God himself who loves me enough to pay my entrance with his blood. And ultimately, it offers Jesus. And I want him. I want not only his kingdom, but I want Jesus himself. I want him as my king and as my authority. And when he calls, I want him to rule over me because I know just how good Jesus really is. The love of this kingdom comes through loving Jesus. And if we have a deficient view of who Jesus is as our king, then our view of the kingdom will also then be deficient. And like before, we need this fuller, beautiful view of Jesus to stir our affections for the kingdom because as he calls to us, he doesn't order us to serve, but he calls us to take part by serving. The call comes wrapped up in his offer of a way of life and service that's far more attractive and good than we can imagine. And so that's the call to the kingdom. But the last question for us to think about, three, is who is called? Who is called to the kingdom? Well, we see this call in action here as Jesus calls his first disciples. He goes out into Galilee. He goes into the most distant part of Palestine, away from Jerusalem, and he calls out two sets of brothers, Simon and Andrew and James and John. Just simple fishermen. 
He begins his preaching of the kingdom and calling people in the most unlikeliest of places, far away from the urban center. And he calls out the fishermen, typical blue-collar workers, everyday people who are on this uh, lower middle-class spectrum. It's interesting that he doesn't go out and advance into the cultural heart of this country. He doesn't go out to the elites or to the intellectuals or to the influencers. He goes out into the boondocks and he calls the loggers and the workers in the sawmill. He goes out to the everyday ag workers and the farmhands and he says, follow me. These are the people who Jesus reaches out to and he announces his kingdom to. And he calls them to take part. And there's something important in this that we cannot miss. The gospel may be profound and it may be life-changing, but the gospel's also simple. I don't mean simplistic, as in pedantic, but simple as in it can be understood. It's intelligible. Why doesn't Jesus begin by going to the most culturally significant places... Because the contents of his proclamation can't be appropriated in any culturally elite way. It's a gospel, a good news, a kingdom for the people. It can be understood. It ought to be understood. We shouldn't wrap it up in unnecessary jargon. And we ought to use words that make it so that people can hear what it is that we're talking about. And not only is the kingdom for everyday people... But you don't need to be elite or intellectual or of a certain personality to be useful to the kingdom either. If Jesus will use these four fishermen to form part of the core of his apostles, then he can, and you know what, and he will use regular everyday people just as he calls them into his service. And when we understand this, then it cannot help but form our expectations for the church and for its witness to the kingdom in which we're called. Right? The church of Christ isn't a place where we seek power or influence. And it sounds stark to say that, but it's true, though, when we start to think about growth solely in, in terms of numbers or of appealing to certain demographics. Because we are here uh, proclaiming Jesus. And CVP here, like all churches, ought to be a place where all people can come and can hear the beauty and the call of Jesus. And speaking a gospel that is intelligible to your everyday person here in Newburgh. Now that speaks real hope and can be understood by real people who are broken and who are mired in their failures and their sins. And that gospel, that kingdom might be countercultural. It might challenge our assumptions, but at least let's put it in terms that they can understand and actually be challenged. And as Jesus speaks then, the call that he gives to them is personal. He says, follow me. Come along. Let me show you. Recognize who I am. Learn from me. Spend some time with me. Heeding the call of the kingdom goes beyond joining a movement. But it's a call to follow after Jesus himself. It's interesting that they just go pick up and go, right? They leave everything behind. They leave their nets. James and John leave their dad in the boat. Why? Well, I'm sure that they had heard Jesus preaching before. It was the latest buzz that was going around Galilee. But Jesus, though, comes to them personally. And he calls out to them personally. Hey, follow me. 
There was something attractive about him in that moment. Something that would cause them to examine their own lives along with their own hopes and dreams and to reevaluate that this man had something better than they had on their own. It takes something more attractive in our eyes for us to drop what we have and to go after something else. And so what is it that is attractive about Jesus that would cause us or to cause you to go and to follow after him? It has to be more than just simply being like him. Because I really don't know how sustainable that is. Because the more we look at him, the more we actually see how much we are not like him. But perhaps his otherness from who we are is part of what actually makes him attractive to us. It may be that this Jesus, in all of his glory and his divine majesty, also takes the time to call intimately to an everyday person like myself in my sinful state. And the more time I spend with Jesus, I recognize how much I am not like him. I'm nowhere near as kind or as loving or as faithful or as merciful as he is. But you know what? He is still kind and loving and faithful and merciful to me despite that. And he doesn't just tell me to buck up in my failures and try harder, but he smiles at me and reminds me of his love that he has, which will never depart from us. And whatever it is specifically that the disciples saw in Jesus, they heed the call and they leave everything. They leave behind their nets. They leave behind their jobs. They put aside their livelihoods that they've known likely for their whole lives. This wasn't just their jobs. This was their means of sustaining themselves in the world. But they leave their families too. James and John leave behind their dad Zebedee in the boat. And in a culture that placed a lot of emphasis on the family, there were all sorts of questions that they would have had to own up to if they would have ended up going back home. There was no going back for them. But as Jesus calls out to them, they see something much more beautiful and much more better than their own lives and their own ways of living in the world had offered to them. This call wasn't only to receive, but it was a call also to be sent. The kingdom calls us to enjoy Jesus and to rest in the shalom and the peace of God, but it also conscripts us to serve. Because the reality is that if we recognize the goodness of this kingdom... And if we hold it as valuable as it really is, then we will want to see it grow. And we will want to see it expand. And, to, and we will want to bring others to share in it. What's Jesus say as he calls him? He says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. I'm fishing people out of the judgment and the darkness of this world. And I'm pulling them up with my nets of grace into my kingdom of light and life. I've done this with you, and I'm sending you out to do the same. Again, we see Jesus using common people for the expansion of his kingdom. Simple fishermen, given a task by the Lord, called to be fishers of men. The fact is that there can be no passive members in the kingdom. Kingdom life is having Jesus, but it's also a call to serve in the kingdom, in all of its manifestations. And if you really love it, and if you really love him, then you'll see to its care. And that can take many forms. 
But that doesn't mean that we need to all quit our jobs and go into full-time ministry. If you keep re reading through Mark, the disciples continue actually to be fishermen. They act like fishermen. They talk like fishermen. They still go fishing. They use their dock privileges to make use of the boats from time to time, right? Where else do you think Jesus and the disciples got the boats from when they went out on the Sea of Galilee? See, they were disciples. They were following after Jesus. They were fishers of people, but they were still also fishermen. And they made use of what they had as being fishermen for the furthering of God's kingdom. When Jesus needed a boat to get across the water to preach at a, certain, at a different place in the Sea of Galilee or, or to stand on to preach to larger masses of people, they were there. We'll get you a boat, Jesus. So following Jesus and taking seriously his call may not mean that we put everything that we have aside right there, but it does mean this, that we look at what we have, at our occupations, at our situations, at our gifts, whatever it is, in ways that will allow us to serve the kingdom more in our own spheres. You don't need to be an elite to be useful to the kingdom. You don't need to have special gifts or talents. It's not like you're going to disappoint Jesus by your inabilities or your fears because Jesus knows who it is that he calls. And as the gospel of this kingdom is proclaimed here now this morning, as Jesus sends you out to serve him and to serve others, are you going to heed that call? As you evaluate the competing kingdoms of God and of your own desires, what is it that's more attractive and good? And will you heed the call because Jesus is kind? Because Jesus is life? As he sends us out, he does so with the deepest of love for us. And as we go out, let's go then with the deepest of love for him. Because he has called us out of darkness and into light to be a kingdom of priests who are characterized by his mercy. He's calling to us. And so let's follow. Let's pray. Lord God, we ask that as we read or hear words about Jesus, that they would not just be about him, or that we would be not be moved by it, but Lord, let us see the beauty of Jesus for us in all of who he is once again and fall in love with that yet again. Maybe for the first time or maybe catching new glimpses of his beauty that we never saw before. And would we take that home? Would we hold on to it? And as beauty changes us, as affections motivate us, would, our beauty, or would, would the beauty of Jesus and our affections for him Carry us. Would they be the wind in our sails as we go forth to serve you, Lord? May we not serve, though, out of fear. May we serve out of love. And would Jesus' attractiveness and would the attractiveness of his kingdom be evident in us as we go forth, in the ways that we live, in the everyday ways that we live, even in our own neighborhoods, at work, as we seek for other ways to advance that kingdom here in Newburgh. We thank you for that. For a kingdom that is everlasting and will never fail. For one that is beautiful. And prepare us now as we come before the table of the King, of the Lord Jesus Christ.
And let us come with expectancy and with eyes focused on him, longing for the nourishment that he gives by his body and his blood that were given for us. And let us keep our eyes on him and holding tight to him, putting aside all encumbrances. In Jesus' name, amen.